Uh, We are in the fourth week uh, of a series called Saved. Uh, If you have your Bible, we're in Romans chapter 12. Uh, If you've been here, you know that Romans 12 is the focus for this entire series. We've been been looking at that, and and we're going to dive into the meat of this series uh, starting, starting tonight. It's actually taken us three weeks to actually get to the first verse of Romans 12 in this series. And, and the reason for that is that we said everything that we're about to read in Romans 12 for Paul, the writer of Romans, is really built on what he shares in Romans 1 through 11. So the focus of this, of this series is what's next after we say yes to Jesus, what comes next in our life, and what we're looking at are the components of the Christian faith that Paul talks about in Romans 12. But again, we've said it's all built upon the first 11 chapters. If you don't have a sense of what Paul has been talking about in the first 11 chapters, then nothing he's about to share with you from chapter 12 on is going to make any sense to you. So a quick review of what we've talked about. We've talked about that in the first 11 chapters, Paul talks about the fact that we all need grace. All of us stand in need of God's grace. There is a separation between ourselves and God that we cannot bridge on our own. We are in need of someone to come and rescue us. We said that you can't understand grace until you you see yourself in need of it. That to truly understand God's mercy and God's grace, which is the theme of those first 11 chapters, you have to understand that you yourself are in need of that gift from God. We said that Jesus has come to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus has come to bridge that gap that we could not bridge on our own. That is the gift that he has made available to us, that Jesus has opened the door for God's grace to set us right before God. We talked about that big church word, justification, which means to be set right with God. That is the gift that is available to us in Jesus who bridges that gap, who sets us right. Jesus has opened that door. And we said that understanding of our life, that understanding of God's mercy on grace, what it, what it grows in us, what it plants in us are the seeds of humility and empathy and gratitude and generosity. That those characteristics are really what define the heart of someone who understands God's mercy and God's grace. Not self-righteousness, not someone who sees themselves as above others, but someone who has the, the characteristics of humility and empathy. Not, not someone who, who lives life begrudgingly, but someone who, who approaches every aspect of the life with a sense of gratitude, whether it be joy or suffering, knowing that God's grace can carry that person through that. And someone who lives with generosity, recognizing that Jesus was the most generous person who ever lived. And and certainly following Jesus involves us living with that same sense of generosity. So that's, that's the framework that we've talked about. And what we said was that perspective, that understanding will help us in, in looking at what Paul talks about as far as the components of the Christian faith. So we spent three weeks talking about that, hammering that point home, but I want to give you one more illustration so that you don't miss the fact that if you don't understand God's mercy and grace, the rest of this isn't going to make any sense to you. So one of the exciting things that has happened in the Alexander household recently, just in case you were wondering, is my wife and my daughter got new glasses. 
very exciting moment to get new glasses um, for, for both of them. For my wife, we, we, we let them get, each of them get two pair this time. So my wife, for the very first time in her life, has prescription sunglasses. I mean, it's like I bought her a new house. I mean, it's so amazing that she's got prescription sunglasses. She's so excited about that. But I don't know if you've ever walked through that process of picking out new glasses for yourself or for someone, uh, someone else who, who you know and you love, but it's, it's an arduous task. Like you walk in and there are thousands of different options of glasses that you could pick out, you know, and you can really kind of define a whole new look for yourself according to the glasses that you pick out, right? And, and one of the things that I did not fully appreciate as someone who has never worn glasses, I have no need of glasses, I, I have what my wife calls laser vision, I, I don't need it for, for far or, or near, I didn't recognize that if you have to pick out glasses for yourself, you have to do that, you have to walk through that process without the benefit of your old glasses, So in other words, people who can't see have to pick out glasses without the benefit of those things that help them see. And so we're in Sam's picking out glasses. I'm standing about 10 feet away from my wife and I keep holding up glasses like, what do you think of these? What do you think of these? And finally she says, I can't see them. I'm not wearing my glasses. So I had had some empathy there for her in that experience. But I have to tell you that I've always been fascinated by glasses. Now, if you wear them, I know you, you're hating me for this because you're thinking they're not fun. You, don't, you wouldn't like to wear them, but I've always been fascinated by them. I've always had this sense that if I needed glasses, that, for, that, that people would think I was smarter if I wore glasses. Have you ever thought that? Like smart people wear glasses. And I just have this sense that if I, if I needed glasses and I wore them on a regular basis, people would immediately think, man, he is a lot smarter than I thought he was. Is that happening for you right now? I mean, are you feeling like, man, I really want to listen to this guy because he's, he's wearing glasses. That's, if so, it's good because I can't see you at all in these glasses. It's, it's really hard. So, but, but, I've, but I've also been fascinated by this idea of what it must be like because I've never experienced it. What it must be like for the very first time to go from, from living a life where there is this, this fuzziness, this inability to really see what's going on around you, and that very first time to put those glasses on and to see life in a whole new way. Things that you couldn't see before, things that you couldn't understand before, things that, that were fuzzy, that, 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 that didn't have clarity, to, to, to slip those glasses on and for the very first time to see life as it is really meant to be seen. That's what's happening here. That's what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about putting on the glasses of grace and that when you do things about life that without them wouldn't make any sense at all, you look at it and go, I don't understand that. Why would you ever live that way? Why would you do When you put the glasses of grace on, you see a perspective on your life that is totally different than what you saw before. So we're diving into chapter 12, we're diving into verse 1, but here's what you have to understand, that if this is going to make sense to you of what the scriptures call you to do as a follower of Jesus, you have to have on the glasses of grace. You have to understand that part of the story, otherwise it won't make any sense. So verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, this is, our, this is our text for today. It says, we read this a couple of weeks ago, therefore... I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper 
worship. So this one verse we're going to look at tonight, you can look at in three different sections. So the first section is what I just talked about. The introduction, Paul is urging us to do something. He's about to tell us what it looks like to live the Christian life, and he reminds us that if you're going to understand that, you have to look at it in view of God's mercies. You have to put on the glasses of grace. And then we move to the second section where he actually tells us what he wants us to do, what Paul is urging his his audience to do is to offer their bodies as a living sacrifice. Let's talk about what does that mean, to offer your body as a living sacrifice. So the first thing we have to keep in our heads is that when we hear the language of sacrifice, the word sacrifice, we think something very differently than Paul's original audience would have thought. Remember that this church was made up of Jews and Gentiles, those who didn't have a a Jewish heritage. We talked about that within this church there was tension between these two groups of people, in part because they came from two very different culture perspectives. Their lives had been very different, they had ordered their life different, but there was something that both of them shared, and everyone at this particular time period who had any religious convictions, there was a practice that they were all involved in All of them practiced animal sacrifice. It was something that was shared among all religions in the ancient world. And so when you hear the word sacrifice, we think of something very differently than Paul's original audience would have thought of. For the Jews, when they heard the word sacrifice, they would have been reminded of the temple in Jerusalem. They would be reminded of doves and and sheep and goats that were brought to the temple as a sacrifice and the thought was that when that gift was given offered at the temple with a heart of repentance that it was a way of setting yourself right with God justification that's what we've been talking about in recent weeks you offered that gift you offered that sacrifice you did so with a repentant heart you were sacrificing because you paid for that animal or you you took it from your own flock and it was a way of setting yourself right with God not once and for all for all time but in that moment to be made right with God again for the Gentiles many of whom had, been, had allegiance to the Roman gods, they would have brought sacrifices to the different gods, gods that in some way connected with different parts of their lives. They did it with a little different idea. Their thought was that if we give this gift to this god, this god will look with favor on this particular area of our life. There was no concept among them of, of a benevolent god, a god who would simply give because that god loves creation. That wasn't present in their way of thinking. It was more of a bribe, something that you would offer to the gods in hopes that that god would see favorably on a particular situation that you had in your life. So while we wouldn't go there, we wouldn't think that. We think about, oh, emptying the dishwasher for someone or or some other form of, of sacrifice in that way. That was certainly what they would have thought of. They would have thought of a sacrifice that would have ended in death. But notice what Paul does with this language. Paul takes their traditional understanding of sacrifice and he turns it upside down. He is not talking about a sacrifice that ends in death. He's talking about a sacrifice that ends in life. 
And what's interesting, when you look at the language that Paul uses here, this text was originally written in the Greek, not in English. But in the Greek, the the word that is using for living is not just something that maintains a heartbeat, not just something that continues living, but rather something that for the very first time becomes fully alive. So offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, not a sacrifice that ends in death, but instead a sacrifice that ends in life, and not just any life, not just the continuation of life, but life in its fullness like you have never experienced before. So so what is going on here? What is Paul seeking to communicate here about this idea of living sacrifice? Well, remember... In the earlier chapters, Paul has talked about that we are all in need of God's grace. You can't understand grace unless you're in need of it. That Jesus has come to offer himself as what? A sacrifice to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus, who in the Gospel of John is referred to as the Lamb of God, has come to offer himself as a sacrifice for us. And in doing so, he's done what? He's justified us just as the sacrifices used to do in the temple in Jerusalem he has set us right with God not for just one moment in time but for all moments of time in other words there is a sacrifice that has been given that has already ended in death and that has been offered to you so that you might be a sacrifice that doesn't end in death but a sacrifice that ends in you becoming fully alive. Now, what do we sacrifice? Paul says we sacrifice our bodies, which at first may sound a little bit strange because our bodies are what hold our life, right? That's certainly how the Jews would have thought of it. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, you're going to read about God taking dirt and forming it in the shape of the man and breathing uh, God's breath into that, that shell and that bringing that shell to life. So according to the Jewish perspective, we are body and we are breath. We hold the breath of God within us and that is what gives us life. And so Paul says, sacrifice your bodies. Well, well, how do I sacrifice my body without it ending in death? How can I sacrifice in such a way that, that it ends in life? Well, think about what you do with your body. With your body, you live your life, it holds your life, but everything that you do with your life, you do with your body. You, you speak with your mouth. You listen with your ears. You, you touch with your hands. You, you move with your feet. You cannot do anything without using your body. Your body is everything to you. And so Paul says, in view of God's mercy and in view of what Jesus has already done for us, being for us the sacrifice that ends in death, allowing us to be the sacrifice that ends instead in life, then what you must do in view of what God has done is to give everything, everything to God. Every word that you speak, everything that enters into your mind, everything that that your hand touches, every place that you go with your feet to present everything to God. Now notice here that, that, that Paul is not talking about be sure and go to church once a week. He's not saying, here's what you need to do. You gotta make sure, okay, look at your date book, look at your calendar, and see if you can carve out at least some time in the day to spend time with God. He's not saying, okay, over the course of a month, 
you need to do like three good things. Like make sure you get three. If you get two, I mean, four would be great, but do at least three good, good deeds. For He's not saying go home and rework your entire budget and your checkbook and make sure that you have 10% set aside to give to God. He's not saying any of those things. He's saying take everything in your life, everything that you have, everything that you hope to be with your life, And in view of what God has done for you, give it all to God. Give it all. And say, God, my life and everything that I have in my life, I give for your service and your kingdom because of what you have done for me. This is now what I will do for you, not part, not a portion, not this little side piece that I put together just for you, God, but rather everything in my life, I present it to you, which to many of us sounds crazy. (laughs) Like that's what crazy people do. That's what people who are really insane, that's what people who like really, really love Jesus do. I mean, that's for those set aside crazy people. And here's what's interesting. Paul expects you to think that, which brings us to the third section. Paul describes what this sacrifice is like. He describes it as something that is holy and pleasing to God. And he says that this act of offering our bodies as living sacrifice is our true and proper worship. Now that word proper is is a difficult one here. Um, From the Greek, go ahead and go to that next slide uh, there, there, Matt. From the Greek, we have this word that you see at the top, which is logikos, okay? Which according to the translation that you might be looking in, is translated many different ways. And so here's a couple of expressions. In the NIV, which I just read to you, it's translated as proper. Um, in the, I can't remember which translation, it's, it's spiritual, you see reasonable, you see essential, you see appropriate. Again, all different translations of this Greek word, logikos. Now, when you look at that list of words, the different ways that it's translated, you sort of have this sense like, well, that's a big deal how you translate that word, right? Because it could lead to many different meanings. So, so what is Paul trying to say about this kind of sacrifice in, in, the, in the word that he is using. Is he saying that it's proper, spiritual, reasonable, essential, appropriate? And why is there such a diversity uh, of translations uh, and, and, and ways that we might understand it? This word logikos comes from the root word logos. Uh, logos in the Greek means the word or reason, meaning sound thinking. So if you uh, remember the beginning of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is the way that John refers to Jesus. He describes him as the Word. So if you look in the Greek, in the first verse of John's Gospel, you're going to see, In the beginning was the Logos, and, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. That's the word that John uses to describe Jesus, a a, a Greek word that can be translated as the word or reason or sound thinking would be another way of thinking about that. Now, what do we get from the Greeks? Let's let's go back to junior English, if, if you will. What do we get from the Greeks? Well, one of the things that we get from the Greeks and from a guy named Socrates, anybody ever heard of Socrates? A, a guy named Plato, anybody ever heard of Plato? Not like things you 
Yeah, yeah, Plato, right? So what we get from them is, is a, a, a modern philosophy, the Western philosophy. The idea that reason is part of what separates humanity from all other creation. In fact, what the Greeks believed is that reason, our ability to think and, and debate and, and come to a, a higher understanding of things, was what connected us to God. That was the, the part of us that was the divine part of us. And so according to the Greeks, someone who could think, someone who could reason, someone who could explain things, who had, had grown in that understanding were people who they would describe as spiritual. So when we think of spiritual, we tend to think of people who sort of feel the presence and spirit of God. We, we associate it more with our emotions. That's where we tend to think about spirituality. But according to the Greeks, they thought of the spiritual as, as being in the realm of our thoughts and our reason and our ability to ar- articulate something. So they would have described a person like that as a spiritual person. They would have used this word, logikos. But again, here's what I want you to hear that according to the Greeks, the people who had achieved the highest level of spirituality were the people who could think things all the way through, who could articulate things, who, who understood uh, how things were, were, were to be. So one of the ways that you might translate, go back to the last slide there, Matt, uh, there, Matt how Paul is describing what it means to offer your body as a living sacrifice is to say that what Paul was seeking to articulate is that when you understand God's mercy and grace, sacrifice is the most logical conclusion of how you might live your life. It's not for crazy people. It's not for those who have set their brain aside and decided, I'm not going to think about my life anymore. But it's about those who have really thought about it and have really come to understand what their life is all about. Those who, whose lives are no longer fuzzy, they no longer quite understand what's going on. Those who have who've put on the glasses, I really can't see you when I put these on, who have put on the glasses and now see their life crystal clear, who understand that sacrifice isn't crazy. This isn't for the super spiritual. This isn't just for some people who, who, who really want to go all out with this, this Christianity thing, but, but rather that sacrifice and living in this particular way where everything that we have, we present to God in a gift, it's the only way of life that actually makes sense in view of God's mercy. It's for those who value little what they have to give up because they appropriately value all that they stand to gain. For people who value little, everything they they have to give up because they have an appropriate understanding of all they have to gain. They have looked at the balance sheet. They have looked at the debits and the credits. They've looked at what can be gained and they've looked at what what is lost and they say, you know what, this kind of life just makes sense. It's the reasonable response to a proper understanding of God's mercy and God's grace. So what does it mean to sacrifice? What does that look like? 
in your life every single day? What does it look like to take everything that you have and, and, and to place it there on the altar and say, God, whatever you need, whatever you want, my life my life is yours. What, is it, what does it look like? John Wesley, who was an 18th uh, century Anglican priest, uh, he, he was one of the ones who uh, was the founder of a movement that would come to be called the Methodist. That's us, by the way. Um, he, expressed it, he expressed it in this prayer. This is what he called his covenant prayer, a prayer that he prayed to, to reaffirm his, his commitment to God. Uh, the prayer was this, I am no longer my own but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and your disposal. What does sacrifice mean? It means what you think it means. It means what you think you think it means. It means what you may not want it to mean. It means taking everything in your life and saying, God, it's yours. It's yours. And Paul says, this is the first step of a life given to Jesus. Surrender. Total and unconditional surrender of who I am, of who I might one day be, of what I have, all given to God. The reasonable response to someone who truly understands God's mercy and God's grace. Now, to some, that sounds crazy. I warned you it would. (laughs) We spent three weeks of me warning you. Some of what Paul's going to talk about is going to sound absolutely insane to you. It does. It totally does. If you don't have the glasses on, if you don't understand the weight of God's mercy and God's grace that has been offered to the world, sacrifice only makes sense when we see God as good and we understand that God, God can be trusted. One of my favorite books is a a book by James Bryan Smith called The Good and Beautiful God, and he tells a story uh, in the third chapter of the book, a story of him taking his son Jacob, six-year-old son, uh, on a roller coaster called the Scrambler for the first time. It was one of their first uh, trips to an amusement park. They went up to this roller coaster and decided to ride it. The sun was tall enough, and so they got on the roller coaster. They got the, the bar down. It started with this great sense of, of anticipation and excitement, which, which uh, James Brian Smith has described as quickly moving to total fear and anxiety and terror on, on his part. He, he says that I held on to Jacob as hard as I could, afraid that he would fly out of his seat with white knuckles and gritted teeth, I prayed the entire 90 seconds of the ride. I don't know if you've had that experience with your child where you're holding on for dear life, just hoping that you don't lose them when you go around that, that curve. That's, that's what it was like for him. He couldn't wait for the ride to end because he was so scared for his son and so scared of what his son might say when they got off of this ride. And when it pulled into the station and it came to a stop and all the noise died down, he said the only thing that he could hear was the sound of his son's laughter. 
he turned to him and he said, what is going on? Are, are you okay? Were, 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 you, were you scared? What, did you enjoy it? And, and, and one of the, quest, the questions that he asked was, why did you get on that ride? And his son looked at him confused and looked up his dad and he said, because you did, dad. <laughs> he said, at that moment, I, I realized that my son had, had somehow come to learn that when he was with me, there was no reason for him to be afraid. That as long as he was with me, there was no reason to have any fear. Sacrifice doesn't make any sense at all if we don't understand that as long as we're with God, there is no reason to be afraid. There is no reason to be afraid. Nothing can take from you what he can give to you. There's no reason to be afraid. And a life of a life of sacrifice, a life when we offer everything up to God, while at first it may sound crazy, when we understand who God really is and how God really sees us, it's not crazy. It actually makes perfect sense. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we continue to pray as we make this journey together that you would reveal yourself to each of us. That you, by your word and by the presence of your spirit, Lord, would teach us about your love, your compassion, and your desire to bless and lead each and every one of us. God, remind us tonight that we are always safe when we are with you. And that the life of faith that you called us to live, that that seems bold and, and even at times, Lord, a little bit crazy, is actually the logical response to a proper understanding of all that you have given to us. And so tonight, as we come to your table and we receive the gift of of your body and your blood, remembering the sacrifice that ended in death, give us the courage, Lord, to be a different kind of sacrifice, one that leads to full, abundant, and everlasting life. Amen.